Yo, yo, yo. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. We appreciate you here as always. And you know who this episode's brought to you by. I don't even really got to say it, but Narwhal Coffee. Narwhal with a G. And what I love, my favorite is, is the light roast. I get up early, grind my own beans. That's a movement as well. You know, put them in the little, I don't even know what it's, oh, French press. Put them in the French press. Press it down. Let it sit. Oh, man. Not pouring that light roast into that that beautiful, clear Ikea coffee cup. You can't beat it. Narwhal Coffee. Check them out. They got some big announcements coming soon. I'm not going to break any news here just yet, but follow their page. Stay tuned for some Narwhal big announcements. NarwhalCoffeeCo.com or Narwhal Coffee Co. on Instagram. This week on the podcast, an absolute legend, Danny Cole. CEO and co-founder of Cole Imports and Closeouts, and I've known Danny for a while, but never really understood what he did or talked to him about what he did, and then just sitting down with him for an hour was one of the coolest experiences. He pretty much started at a swap meet when he was 16, 15, 16 in high school, and then built built a very, very successful company from there on, but I'll let him tell you more about it than me. I'm just super excited about this one, and... Uh, just really grateful he came through and blessed the podcast so thanks to danny and i know you guys are gonna enjoy this one and get a lot out of it so danny cole everybody so um so the company's coal imports and closeouts and um it started in the early early days selling at swap meets so i was in high school and just trying to make some extra money buying and selling stuff. And uh, I didn't go to college, um, but I answer people when they ask me where I went to school, I say I went to SMU and I refer to that as Swap Meet University. Um, And I think you've heard that over time, I'm not sure, but uh, it's my go-to joke um, because I really believe I got the best education in business that I ever received. And I think it sticks with me even now. Illest podcast on the planet, BMP. Three, two, one. Danny Cole in the house. Good to see you, Johnny. You too, man. Dang, so we've been trying to get this for some time now. I've been trying to get him in here. You've been very persistent. (laughs) (laughs) Finally got him on, but yeah, how's everything? Everything is good. Life is good. Gotta love it, gotta love it. No Patron today. 11 a.m. one, so. We're we're sticking water. Sticking with water. (laughs) A lot of day today. But so CEO and founder of Coal Imports? Yes, along with my brother and my mom and dad uh, when we originally started the company about uh, 35 years ago. Damn, long time. Time flies, yeah? Time definitely flies. I'm still not sure how I've had a business for 35 years. <laughs> I still feel young enough that that shouldn't be possible, but uh, yeah, 35 years. That's crazy. So how did, how did that get started? What exactly is it? Cause- so... Um, so the company's coal imports and closeouts, and um, it started in the early, early days selling at swap meets. So I was in high school and just trying to make some extra money buying and selling stuff. And um, at the time we started it, my parents actually had a sandwich shop. Uh, they were not involved in the business at the early days. And the, the funny story is our first warehouse, warehouse was the bathroom of our parents sandwich shop Um, and that's where we would put everything when we were done trying to sell stuff on the weekends and you know back then it was just buying and selling whatever we could we would go to the swap meet and back then a swap meet was not what it is now nowadays a swap meets full of all kinds of new merchandise back then it was people's garage sales it was a bunch of people bringing their stuff from their from their home and they would go out to the swap meet. And what we would do is we would go over to those people. We would try to buy the stuff they were selling and then take it to our booth and sell it for more. 
So it was a very simple formula of Got trying it. to be entrepreneurs at a young age of if they're selling this for $5 and we think we could sell it for 10, we would buy it and try to sell it. So what incentivized you to, or what incentivized them to sell to you? They went there to sell their stuff. So they didn't care who they sold it to. They just wanted to sell their stuff and get rid of it. And we would go and we would try to buy it from them. And like I said, that was our inventory was walking around and buying from other people. And the business evolved from there. So at the very early days, we were selling, buying and selling used merchandise. And then we found a company that we could buy new merchandise from. So back then we were selling tool sets that used to be before your time. Uh, there used to be like a hot item that you'd find like everywhere. It was like a 40 piece socket set. It was like a starter tool set for people. And you have to remember 35, 38 years ago, this is before before there were you know retailers all over the place that were selling promotional merchandise so it wasn't readily available mm -hmm. so we found someone that we could buy new merchandise from so instead of buying used merchandise and having to search to find stuff we were able to find stuff that we could keep getting and we could right. buy it and then resell it so we would buy a socket set for two dollars and sell it for four you did sell it at the swap meet still? And we'd sell it at the swap meets. And so if we would sell a hundred of them in a weekend, we made $200. When you're in high school, that's a lot of money. Yeah, and you know, 35, 38 years ago, it's even a lot more money. Um, and it evolved from there. We're basically, um, we were buying it from one person. Then we found the person that that person was buying it from. So we were able to move out one layer and we, instead of buying them for $2, we were buying them for $1.50 just to give rough ideas. And then we started selling it wholesale to other people as well as selling some of them retail. So the business just kind of evolved from wow. used merchandise to new merchandise. Um, and then through luck of the draw, we met a gentleman from Taiwan who basically said to us, if you want to import from Taiwan, all these prices you're paying, we can give you everything far cheaper if you want to buy it from Taiwan directly. Sounded like a great formula. The problem was we had no money to import. We didn't have any, we had no working capital. Okay. So we told him that problem and he either had the good vision to know we were honest or he was crazy <laughs> and got lucky. But in either case, we imported a container from Taiwan, which we had never even thought about doing. So then all of a sudden our price was cheaper than all the people we were buying it from. And we started selling to all the other wholesalers. And it basically, wow. wet, it basically wet our appetite of what was possible. And our business evolved from selling all this used stuff at the swap meets to selling nothing but new stuff. And it was all kinds of new merchandise, socket sets, bench vices, floor jacks, but all in the tool arena. And we were in high school and basically we were in San Diego. And I took a bunch of my friends and said to my friends, how about if you go to this swap meet, you go to this swap meet, you go to this swap meet, and we would load up everybody's cars in the morning. And my friends all made a little bit of what they sold. So they were able to make some good right. money. And all of a sudden we were spread out at like eight different swap meets every weekend. And the business just kind of took off. And so how long did it, was that gap from being just buying other people's stuff to getting imports from Taiwan. There was probably a, the cycle was probably somewhere like three to five years. So that's not, the, I was thinking it was way longer. No, not, not, it all happened very quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, by the time I was out of high school, um, we had moved the business from San Diego to Los Angeles. 
with the logic being that being in San Diego, it was hard to really grow the business because we figured out there were a lot of customers that came to Los Angeles to buy merchandise, mm. but they didn't necessarily come down to San Diego. So in 1983, we moved the business up to Los Angeles. And at that point, I was in my final semester of high school and I stayed in San Diego while my brothers and my mom and dad moved to LA with the business. So I stayed in San Diego for my final semester of high school and then moved up to Los Angeles. Um, and basically the business evolved over a lot of different categories. We basically were really good at looking at merchandise and figuring out the value of that merchandise. So we would go over to China and we would look for anything from tools to household items, to home decor items, Got it. whatever we thought was a good deal, we would buy it and we would import it and we would sell it. In roughly 1990, the dollar store phenomenon started to take shape. So in roughly 1990, we went to a show and people were walking over and saying, do you have merchandise that could sell for a dollar retail? And we really didn't even understand that business because no one knew <laughs> yeah, what that business right. was at that point. And we, for example, might have been selling a 10-piece screwdriver set that we were selling for $5. So we went to the factory and we said to them, what would it cost to just put one screwdriver on a card? Just one screwdriver. And maybe the cost was 30 cents. So we knew we could maybe sell it for 45 cents. But that would sell for a dollar retail. So we went to China and we basically created, not that we manufactured something new, but mm -hmm. we took merchandise and turned it into merchandise that could sell for a dollar retail. So we went to our first show and we put up a sign that said dollar store items. And it was a little hokey sign, probably a 12 by 12 paper sign that said dollar store items. And it was kind of the field of dreams concept, build it and they will come. Um, it was like people flocked to our booth. And we really like sold everything we had. And my brother Rob and I looked at each other like, what just happened? And realized that something really amazing was going on. So we basically took all of our existing inventory. When we sold it down, every dollar we had, we poured into finding more merchandise to sell for a dollar. And fast forward six months later, a year later, we maybe had 500 items that could sell for a dollar retail at a time that everybody else was just starting to figure out that world. So at that moment, we really had, if not the biggest, close to the biggest variety of any company out there for dollar stores. And it was a complete explosion on the market right. where every trade show we went to in our office, we were getting calls daily from people saying, I'm opening a dollar store. I need merchandise. Can you send me an order? How quick can you send me an order? And our business basically exploded at that point. And there was a good 15 to 20 year run like this, you know, where the business just, um, everything was lined up. Um, you know, we made a, we made a gutsy decision to do it because we really put all of our eggs into that basket, into assuming that into the dollar business. Um, it grew far more than we ever thought it would grow. Um, the, the industry, not necessarily our business. Our right. business did great as well, but the dollar store industry, nobody saw that coming to the degree that it's now a part of the retail landscape. I mean, right. it is a, Huge. everywhere yeah. you go, you see dollar stores now. Um, and so we had about a 20 year run where that went incredible. And then the dollar store industry started changing. And it got a little oversaturated and a lot of the major players 
started opening up hundreds, hundreds, thousands of stores. So the individual operator, if there was Johnny's dollar store somewhere mm-hmm. in Santa Monica, was out. having a hard time competing because all the majors were in it. So at that point, we started to reinvent ourselves again. So that started about probably seven years ago where we basically took our product line, which had turned into basically 100% of what we sold could be sold for a dollar retail. Everything we sold was a dollar retail. And over the last seven years, we've reinvented ourselves again. And thankfully, we're in another upward growth pattern because we didn't sit still when we saw you know, the ship was starting to sink to a certain extent in that industry. So what we do now is um, we're about 60% of our business is imports, meaning it's everyday regular merchandise that we stock and it's continue um, continuity items that we always have. Got it. And 40% of our business is now closeouts where we have a team of people calling, looking for companies that have obsolete inventory, mm-hmm packaging changes. It goes kind of across the spectrum of all different stories of why someone would have a closeout. And we're now 60% imports, 40% closeouts. But the other really huge shift is our retail price points now go up to $100 retail. So mm. instead of selling just items that could sell for a dollar retail, we're covering all price points. Got it. So, um, Definitely been a lot of uh, moving and shaking in terms of changing our business model. Um, you know, we feel we're really good at that because Clearly, we, yeah. that's that's what we've always done. We've always looked for merchandise to keep it really simple. Merchandise that's a really good deal. Right. So there's a lot there. Just there was back, a lot there. Just backtracking a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, so did you or did you not invent the dollar store? Did not. Did not. Did not. So it's a really interesting story. You were right there, though. We were right there, and we actually (laughs) knew the person that actually started the first concept, and it's a pretty interesting story. 99-cent-only stores, which is based in Los Angeles, that's Uh up to a few hundred stores throughout the West Coast now, was founded by a gentleman by the name of Dave Gold. And Dave Gold had a wholesale company, but he also had a weird transition. He also had a (laughs) liquor store. Okay. And he had a liquor store somewhere in Los Angeles, and um, he had a bunch of wine that he couldn't sell, and he kept lowering the price, and nobody would buy it. And then he put a big sign on this huge group of bottles of wine, 99 cents, and it all sold. And he was a really smart retailer, and then he did it again like a week later, and again, everything sold. Mm. And he figured out there was magic to that price, which there really is. Um, And it's so the 99 cent concept originated with bottles of wine. Mm. Uh, And then he opened a store called 99 cent only. And it was everything in the store was 99 cents. And he was really the first person to do it. You know, it's, it's kind of a hybrid of, you know, the old before your time, the five (laughs) and dime store, which you may have heard that term, but Mm -hmm. It was basically every every little town, every city had five and dime stores, and they were just little variety stores. Why but is it five and dime? Is it- that's just what they were called. Okay. It, it was basically just mixed price points throughout the store, Got but it, it was a lot of cheap stuff in the stores. Uh, but it was never a single price point. And what happened in retail was they figured out that that 99 cent price point was really just a magic number because whether it was a mom and dad taking their kids in and they could say to the kid, go pick any three toys you want. 
the kid walked out and felt great about it because they got three toys. The parent didn't have to wonder, are they buying a $20 toy? Are they buying a $10 toy? But the same was true for all categories. So if you wanted to buy some hardware, you knew you could buy a a hammer, a screwdriver, and some nails. It was just a dollar. And so um, the concept took off really, really big time um, to the degree now that it's a, you know, it's a worldwide phenomenon. There's really not a country in the world that doesn't have dollar stores Mm -hmm. or some version of a dollar store. So yeah, that's how it started. And then so so you got in by supplying all you you said oh like I see this trend coming exactly so now we need to make products that we can sell for a dollar a hundred percent so then, oh, so cool. yeah so and and again it was a um, you know I don't like to belittle it and say it was luck because I don't really I'm not a huge believer in luck um, mm. I think you make your luck um, we made a strong decision that in believing in the concept because it was something we had even though we'd been involved in retail and wholesale and, and spoken with retailers a lot, we had never seen the kind of buzz there was when this dollar store thing started. I mean, it was just like right. people were walking around trade shows and you could see that everybody was thinking what's going on here. Right. And, um, you know, there was through the first 10 years, you know, I say through the first 10 years, people would say to me, who do you sell to? And I would say to friends of mine, we sell to the underbelly of retail. We sell to stores you've probably never been into. Because mm-hmm. that's what dollar stores started as. People would think that's ridiculous. Why would you go into a store that everything's <laughs> 99 cents? But now you're hard pressed to find someone who has not been right. into a dollar store because they realize there's really good values. And the reality of the consumer is there's a lot more people looking for a deal than there are going into Nordstrom's that could afford to pay a lot more money for things. Definitely. And I think that's a huge part of what fueled it is there's just people need a deal. No, that's so cool. So you kind of had like your ear to the ground by being at the swap meets and then you're like, oh, I see this coming. And then you kind of just went all in on that, right? Yeah, and- I think that's a pretty good way of putting it. And I think, you know, I've, I've always joked and I think you've, you've heard my joke, you know, uh, I didn't go to college, um, <laughs> but I answer people when they ask me where I went to school, I say I went to SMU. And I refer to that as Swap Meet University. Um, And I think you've heard that over time. I'm not sure. But uh, it's my go-to joke um, because I really believe I got the best education in business that I ever received. And I think it sticks with me even now. You learn to deal with all kinds of people. You may deal with the person that it's their last few dollars. And you may deal with the really rich woman who's there and just likes to fight it out on price. And you had to learn to negotiate. You had to learn to look, you know, are people just... Are they negotiating with me just because they want to negotiate? Are they negotiating because there's a reason to negotiate? And I think those skills have stayed with us um, right. throughout you know, our whole life, lifeline of our business. Like that really is the best education. Absolutely. And, and I love what you said about you make your own luck because like, I was having this argument at work the other day uh, with a few employees. We were going at it a little bit. I'm like, There's this girl who she's 23 and directed. She's a big director. And I'm like, I see her age and we do all her numbers. And so I see like how much she's making. And I'm like, oh my God. I get 23, they're like, oh, she got lucky. Like she, she met him, she met him. And then like, I do some research and she cold called this director and then he took her under her wing and like, I'm like that, that's not luck. Like, right. she, you know, so that's just like tying that into to what you did too. Yeah. Like, well, I think not, when you, I don't think that's the, the key thing I think that I heard that you just said is that she cold called the director, right? She made it happen. She how didn't sit back that? and think, how am I going to make it happen? She actually went out and did it. Yeah. And, um, I think that's a bit of a lost art at this point. <sighs> Uh, I think there's a, um, a generational tie in there. I think there is a, um, 
your generation, definitely. To put it, to put it bluntly, I, I think there is a um, with some people a sense of entitlement. Some people a sense that it's just going to happen by accident. Right. Um, and we still run our business to this day. That if you want things to happen, you've got to make it happen. So you know the, everything from our sales staff constantly hears the you have to constantly, constantly be planting seeds of how you're going to continue to grow your business. Right. If you're sitting back and dealing with who you deal with now and expecting new business just to come your way, you're going to end up with your numbers going down long-term. And if right. you're someone that is constantly, you know, we, we really um, have always pushed a real entrepreneurial spirit at our company. So our salespeople are never territorial. So for example, some companies, their salespeople have a territory. Mm. So your territory might be whatever the West coast, whatever it may be, but that in itself is somewhat limiting, even though the West coast is huge. Right. Once they feel like they've hit all the targets in that area, what are they supposed to do? They've hit, that's all they can <laughs> do. So our comment to our salespeople is you have the whole world. Anything you can discover that we're not selling to, you can go, you can approach that company and try to sell to them. And we really preach the, you know, if you were working at Cole Imports, you would hear that you are running Johnny's Imports within the umbrella of Cole Imports. And the more you work and the harder you run your business, the more you're going to build your business. Um, some people thrive on that and some people don't, you know, and that's right. similar to, you know, if you have a basketball team, not everybody's an all-star, you know, some people can push themselves more, some can't. Exactly. Um, but that concept works well for us. But um, I, I've said that comment many, many times about you don't, uh, I'm not a big believer in luck. You make your luck. I um, and I think it's, um, something that a lot of people miss out on now. Definitely. But that really like pushes your salespeople, right? To like, this is your business under our umbrella. It, it, it does. Um, being someone who's super motivated and yeah. has always been self-motivated, I always marvel at how some people, it doesn't push them as much as I think it, it should. Mm. Um, should is maybe the wrong word. Doesn't push, push them as much as I would push. Um, and that's something that's innate in people. They either have that or they don't. Mm. You know, it's the uh, back to the sports adage where you can't teach heart. You know, that's true, I think, in every aspect of, of life. You know, some people have that inner drive. So I have salespeople that on their own make decisions that they're going to jump on a plane and they're going to fly to El Salvador and Honduras and they're going to go down there and they're just going to see what they can drum up. Right. And some people that are more comfortable to stay in a safer, you know, stay at their desk and definitely and, and play it a little bit safer. So you think that's innate in people? I do. I think you could push people to a certain extent. Okay. Um, but, uh, I guess the, you can lead a horse to water. Right, but you can't make a drink. I think that's true with people. Got it. Um, you know, there are people that you could push and make better. I think that's part of, mm -hmm. you know, my role as a, you know, as a coach, so to speak, in terms of our sales staff, my right. job is to make them better. But there is a point with certain people that they, they stay in their, in their safe zone. And some people are willing to push beyond that. I guess I'd go back to the young lady you were talking about who's 23 that's directing movies. She was willing to risk calling a director and getting the phone hung up on her. Um, exactly. And by putting herself out there and doing that, she's now, you know, the recipient of the, of the luck, right. which is not the luck, but <laughs> I think you get my point. Yeah, no, it's just crazy to me how people like hate on that kind of, like, like, oh, she got lucky. Like, no, 
No, she didn't. Yeah. I I don't know. That's... Well, I think that's a, uh, I think that's a cop out by a lot of people. I think, you know, when you're, when you're saying someone else got lucky, you don't have to look at yourself and judge yourself. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's a, it's the real safe way to go. If you say that person did a better job than me, that hurts. If you say that person got lucky, you can continue to justify your line of BS that you're throwing out there. I love this. I love this. Yeah. Yeah. But how, so how many employees do you guys have? We're just under a hundred. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. We have a good, uh, really great group of people. I think it's a huge part of our success. We have, um, probably have a dozen, maybe more, a dozen to 15 people that have been with us 25 years or more. Wow. Um, our average length of employment is something like 14 years right now. Um, so we tend to keep people and I think it's, I think it's because we treat people fairly. I think people realize that when they work for us, they get to, they get to be creative and have some anonymity where they can do what they mm-hmm. want to do to make their, their job their own. You know, again, it's within the umbrella of what we believe in as a company. Uh, but whether it's our, our department that works on all of our packaging, you know, they create the packaging. They're not, you know, right. there's nobody sitting over them making sure they're doing it exactly each piece, they have a general concept of what we're looking for. And I think that follows through throughout our entire company. And I think that breeds some longevity with people staying with us. Got it. So for, for people my age, my generation, I see people like at a job for a year and then move to another job for a year and then another job for a year. So what do you think about, do you think that's more of a generational thing or do you think that's more of a company? I think it's more of a generational, generational thing. thing. Yeah. Uh, even with our success, I've seen that as well. Uh, there is, um, I don't know if it's that the grass, the thought process that the grass is greener somewhere else. Mm. I don't know if it's the desire just to, um, try different things. Uh, but there is zero question. You are definitely right. There is a, mm-hmm. um, a bit of a, um, a mindset. I think that I'm just going to keep moving around, yeah. which I think is unfortunate. Cause I think, um, like there's times that it makes sense for someone to move around. Right. Um, but I think some people think the moving around is going to create that luck, you know, like I'm going to just fall into something that's yeah. going to be perfect. And it's not, there's no job that's quote unquote perfect. You have to find your way. You have to, you know, work on your craft. You have to get good at what you're doing right. and you don't do that in a year. You know, if somebody new starts with us, whether they're in sales or buying, I look at the first year as just a learning experience. Right. Like definitely. at the end of a year is when you should start getting good at what you're doing. Yeah. And if you're leaving at the end of a year, I'm not even sure what you really learned or what you really tried to put into practice. Yes. Yeah, so what do you think that's due to? Like what? It's a great question. I, I don't think I know the answer to that. I think it really is just a generally generational thing that so many people see other people, you know, uh, whether it's their LinkedIn profile, That's they right. got another new job, they got another new job, and maybe they're at a job that they've been there for a year or two and they're feeling less than totally fulfilled. And rather than sticking with that and getting really great at it, mm-hmm. they believe the answer is just to go somewhere else. Um, yeah, I think there is a, um, I think there's a part of it. that's a little bit of, if I don't love what I'm doing, it's not because of what I'm doing. It's that I could just go somewhere else. (laughs) Um, you know, and I think there's, you know, look a generation ago, people didn't jump around jobs so much. So Mm -hmm. if you were miserable at a job, you should leave. But if you're at a job that you believe you can be good at, I think back in the day, it sounds like I just really aged myself, but um, I think people would stick with it and yeah. they would say, how do I get really good at what I'm doing here? If I believe in the company, if I believe I can do this job, how do I get really good at it? And I think now there's just a, um, 
there's a, a quick kind of flight. Like, definitely, it's not for me. I'm just going to go do something else. Right. And I feel like a lot of that too is because, I mean, you always, com- I feel like every generation has compared themselves to their peers, but now it's like you see so many with just social media and all this stuff, you see so many more of people your age that like they're successful maybe because their Instagram post, they're posting with a nice car or something. And you're like, fuck. Like, I think there's a huge part of that for sure. And yeah, then, yeah. I would, I would, I would not want to be, I would not want to be starting a business in this day and age with everything going on with social media. Cause I think there's so much pressure to have it happen immediately for you. Right. And <laughs> yeah. that's just not how you build a business. You know, it's not how you really build like, any part of your life. I mean, it's, you know, uh, I'll use the term a lot of work. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm. And I think a lot of people in your generation are looking for the sprint and they're looking for it to happen instantly. And I just think it's unrealistic. Um, I think if you look at, you know, I tend to always fall back to sports analogies, but if you look at the best athletes in any sport, none of it happened quickly. You know, they started when they were seven (laughs) and they put hours and hours and hours into the gym and, you know, the really great ones study game film and have amazing work ethics and all those things that tie into success. I think it's completely transferable to business. I think it's transferable to relationships. I think it's, you know, if you're willing to put work into things, I think good things happen. If you're looking for the quick fix, you know, occasionally you'll get lucky. But that's, you know, again, that's the real rare, rare case where right. someone just falls into something. I'm not a believer that happens very often. Right. No, I love that. And so, so we were touching on it before, but you said seven years ago, you switched your, like your, the kind of vision of your business. And so what, what gives you the ability? At, Cause at that point you've kind of like, you know, made a bunch of money and like, so what gives you the ability to just like switch and take another risk like that? Or, um, you know, I guess from the ability standpoint, I would say, um, you know, my brother and I, I think, have a really good eye for merchandise. Okay. And, you know, we have a pretty simple formula in terms of what we sell. We really keep it, whether it's, you know, we have, we have like 6,000 items. So we have a lot of different merchandise that we sell. And it covers about 20 different categories of merchandise. So everything from toys, home decor, tools, and automotive, just a lot mm-hmm. of different things. But within every category, we keep it pretty basic. So if you were to look at our houseware category, for example, you're not going to look at a lot of items that you don't understand what they are. Like we're not selling a bunch of specialty items. We're selling just basic items. So that's part one of the formula for us. We're just selling basic merchandise that if we can look at it and say, it's a good deal retail, we're confident it's going to sell. So that's how we switch gears to your other question about the making money or, you know, there's a, um, there's a huge part of me and I can speak for my brother as well that we're, we remain very hungry. You know, we really like what we do. Um, we remain hungry to grow the business. You know, I uh-huh. take very, uh, seriously the fact when you asked how many people work for me, um, work with me, I prefer to say, um, the people that work with us, you know, we have a responsibility to work as hard as we can to keep those people employed, keep right. their, keep the company doing well so they can make more money. Um, and I'm really motivated by that. I, it really pushes me. Um, I've, I've said this before at company events, but I tend to be driven most by the newest employee in the building because my viewpoint is if the company doesn't do well, that person who probably has a family who needs the money for the job that he got with us, mm. 
he's probably the first one to go if things don't go well. So I always look at the newer people and I say, I have a responsibility. So whether I'm in China doing buying, the reason I push myself so hard when I'm there is I feel a responsibility to the people that are expecting me to go to China and do, do good work. Got it. So I think that's really what keeps me hungry, hungry. motivated, driven. Yeah. So, so the hunger comes from other people then like your newest employee, like you said, I'd say it comes from a good amount from other people and the fact that I'm super competitive, um, on everything okay. I do, you know, and, um, I'm driven to want to do the best I can do. And I'm not someone that is going to do anything, pretty much anything in my life where I don't feel like I'm going to go all out and push myself. And, um, I think that's the other, the other factor for me. Uh, that's great. Just cause back to sports analogies for a second. I see a guy like Conor McGregor who comes from nothing then gets to the top and then kind of like now he hasn't really done anything, been just selling whiskey, which is cool, you know, but like he talks, but he talks about fighting all the time, but the, like the hunger is just not there, you know, which is probably different cause he's getting punched in the face, but <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I'm not sure his other options are all that great. If he, once he stops getting punched in the face, I'm not sure he's got a great fallback. The whiskey thing's only going to last as long as his name is relevant in sports. Mm. Um, and I hope he doesn't see this cause I don't want him to get angry. At me. <laughs> um, but, um, no, I think, you know, I think you have to figure out you know, no matter what you're doing, you know, I think you have to figure out a way you stay motivated. And I think for everybody that answer is different. Right. Um, I, I know what huh. works for me, but I think, you know, when you are doing something back to the conversation about people jumping around jobs, part of any job is figuring out a way that you continue to find purpose in it for yourself mm-hmm. and figure out a way that it means something to you. And I think that's really true for any any aspect of any work. I think if you are continuing to find a way within your work that you can push yourself, I think it allows your brain to stay involved, which I think keeps you hungry and keeps you motivated. I think once you become a, you know, a, a paper pusher, I think you've lost all, yeah. all the excitement. So switching gears a little bit. Though, yeah. What's the, what's the game you play? Just talking about your competitive spirit again. Oh, I play pickleball. Pickleball. Can we talk about that for a second? Absolutely. I'll always <laughs> talk about pickleball. Because yeah, you were telling me about that uh, when we met a few weeks, a few months ago now, probably. But like, and it sounded so interesting to me. I'd never heard of it. Yeah. So pickleball is, um, pickleball started amazingly. It was invented in 1965, but nobody ever heard of it until just a few years ago. Yeah. Two brothers up in Washington state created the game in their backyard and it's got a terrible name. It's a great game with a terrible (laughs) name. Uh, And the story actually is these two brothers would go out and play in their backyard and they had a dog named Pickles that used to run outside, steal the ball and run away. And it became called pickleball makes it even dumber, but that is the name. Uh, But basically it's, it's kind of a hybrid of tennis, um, ping pong, badminton. Um, It's played on a tennis court type surface um, about 25% the size of a tennis court. Okay. It looks from afar like a tennis court when you look at it, same kind of net. Mm-hmm. Uh, you play with a wiffle ball and hard paddles, and it's a very quick hand-to-eye game. Um, it's the fastest-growing sport in the country. Oh, wow. And um, I've gotten very into it, very competitive. Uh, it's been a great game for me on every level. Um Socially, it's amazing. Met a lot of great friends. Mm-hmm. For me, it's been beyond great socially. I met my fiance playing pickleball. Oh, you met her playing pickleball? I met her playing pickleball. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we became friends and um, because it is a really social game. I right. probably have 30 or 40 numbers in my phone of friends that I've made from playing that when I want to play, we'll just shoot out a text and people meet up. 
Um, and we became friends and uh, then started playing together. And um, yeah, we play in tournaments together. And, right. Um, yeah, I'm really into it. If I could... Uh, if I could monetize it somehow, I might drop the coal imports thing and start playing pickleball. <laughs> I'm sure if anyone can figure that out, it'll be you. Yeah, it's not happening. But um, No, but it's a great game. I love right. it. It uh, keeps me really active. I probably play five to six days a week. Um, I'm really, really into it, and it's just a really fun game to play. Because you started playing racquetball, right? And then- yes. Used to play a lot of racquetball uh-huh. and um, went from racquetball to pickleball, and I used to play racquetball a lot. And basically don't play at all anymore. Um, the nice thing about pickleball, it's outdoors where racquetball is indoors. Got it. Um, and it's just a, it's a fun game because there's a lot of strategy involved. So back to my competitive nature, right. I love trying to figure that out and figure out how to get better. Um, at one point I was playing with everybody was better than me and slowly that's evolved a bit and I still love playing with people that I think are better than me because it makes you get better Um, and uh, I like losing sometimes I hate losing but I like losing because it means I'm playing with someone better than me and it helps me evolve Uh, but yeah it's a fantastic game gotta get you out there oh I would love what's the demographic like Is it it older? Um, It's older, but it's changing very quickly. Um, It is changing really quickly. So when it it started, it was really much older people. Um, But tournaments we go to now, there's, you know, 20-year-olds that are college tennis players that are now playing. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a couple of uh, females that are moving up in the rankings right now that were professional tennis players, professional tennis coaches. Um, Is it like a league? It's not a league, but it's a, um, there's a rating system like the, mm. um, like the tennis ratings. I think it's the USAPA, I believe is what it is. Um, but you know, there's, you know, there's a tournament going on next weekend in Palm Desert that I believe is 2000 people. I played in a tournament two weeks ago that was 1200 people. Um, 1200 people playing? 1200 people <laughs> throughout all kinds of divisions. People <laughs> come in great. from other states. Um, How'd you do in it? Um, I played in two divisions. I played in mixed uh-huh. My fiance Monica and we had a bad weekend. It wasn't mm-hmm. our wasn't our weekend, which is okay. <laughs> um, and I played in the men's division. And I took the gold medal in the men's division. No way. Yeah, Wait. So, that so was, was that doubles or singles? Doubles. You took the gold medal. Yeah. So and that ha- was um, that was a good thing. So um, yeah, it went well. And um, yeah, and uh, Monica and I usually my fiance my name is Monica. I think you knew yeah. that. Um, <laughs> we actually usually do fairly well. We've won a lot of tournaments, and uh, we've continued to move up because there's rankings where you when you win you have to move up to the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're playing at a pretty high level right now and still doing really well. So it's fun. Damn. So does does that help keep you like not young, but you know like just keep you moving? And I don't I don't know because I see a lot of older people. Not old, you know you know what I mean. I can take people it older than me. <laughs> Like just kind of lose the hobbies that they once had. And then, you know, yeah, for me, it's, for me, it's super important. Um, it's a great question, by the way. I think it's super, super important for my mind Mm -hmm. to keep doing things other than just being tied into work. And I've always had that balance where I'm not all about work. Um, you know, there were times that I was doing, you know, crazy swimming events. I was ocean swimming. I was swimming from Alcatraz to San Francisco. Then we, me and a group of friends climbed Mount Rainier and, you know, doing things to keep my mind active and also physically to stay in good shape. I Mm -hmm. think it really pays off. Um, Pickleball in particular, as much as I play, 
definitely um, does a lot for me just, you know, health wise to keep moving around. But also, like I said, for my mind, it's really important where I can check out of work and check into something else uh, that's meaningful goes a long way for me. And have you always been like that? Even when you were first starting the business, always had, had something on. Yeah, I've always been that way. And I've always tried to keep the balance. Um, You know, my kids, whenever they played sports, um, I coached them throughout, Mm -hmm. you know, even when my business was on a real crazy growth pattern. I, I tried to keep that balance where I would go to work. And when I was coaching my kids a lot, I might've been at my desk. I, I wasn't maybe at my desk. I was at my desk ridiculously early to right. allow me to leave at three in the afternoons to go coach my kids. Um, I wow. felt for me that was super, super important to have both. Um, but if it wasn't coaching my kids, it was playing basketball or playing racquetball or swimming or, Mm -hmm. you know, doing triathlons. I mean, those were all things that I was doing over the last 25 years. I just think it's a real, I think think the balance is super important. Got it. Got it. No, I love that. And just like touching off that a little bit going in early, because when we got lunch a few months back, you said something that really stuck with me. You're like, sometimes my my sales guys get there at 630 and sometimes, you know, I'll just get in at six and just to kind of show that like I'm here, you know, I'm here too. And like, I'm, I'm in it with you guys. Like, and I, I just love that. Yeah. There's, um, I mean, there's value on that in many ways, but yeah. I think, um, you know, I'm very comfortable if you were to ask anybody that works with me, do I work hard? They would probably answer if I'm not the hardest working person in the building, I'm certainly near the top. Um, I would answer that I'm the hardest working, but they really want to get <laughs> it to me. Um, but no, I think it's important. You know, I've got a little sign next to my desk that says walk the talk. And uh, mm. I don't expect anything from anybody else and I'm not willing to do myself. Um, so whether that's jumping on a plane to go see a customer, um, going to a trade show, setting up a booth, which is not glamorous, but right. it's part of the business that has to be done. Jumping on a cold call and just trying to make something happen. Mm. Um, I think you have to, got to back it up. All right. I lo- and that reminds me, I know you're not a big Kobe guy, but there's this Kobe quote. He says, rest at the end, not in the middle. I like that. And you know what? And, and let's just to be clear, I am not a Kobe fan, but I respect the hell out of him because I think he had a work ethic and a killer instinct second to none. And um, whether I like right. the person or not, I fully respect his ability and his desire. Um, and I think if you look at the greats in anything, whether it's business, it's sports, people have to have that, that desire to mm-hmm. work that hard. And he definitely had that. Um, you won't hear me say a lot of nice stuff about him. Um, but no, I, I think that's, it's a hundred percent true. There's no question. You can yeah. never question his work ethic and that work ethic ended up in results for him. It's really that simple. I mean, what don't you like about him again? What's well, my running debate on Kobe is <laughs> I believe you're going to have a hard time telling me a player that played with Kobe Bryant, that Kobe Bryant made better. Okay. I believe he was very focused on his scoring and, I'm more of a Magic Johnson type guy. Okay. Give me a player that makes everybody around him better. So LeBron? You like LeBron? Big LeBron guy. Okay. Yeah. What about, you don't like Russell Westbrook? Uh, you got to love his energy, but huh? uh, you got to love his energy. Oh, okay. uh, some of the uh, antics I'm not a huge fan of, but <laughs> the guy definitely plays at a at a very high level. And Yeah, definitely. I might be reaching a bit here, but your mentality towards business is directly related to the basketball players you like. You're like, I'm, I work with people. I don't have... I don't, people don't work for me. They work with me. And then like guys that make people better, you like guys that are more selfish. You don't like, so I'm, I'm kind of seeing, I think that's a really fair point. I think you're, you're spot on there. You know, um, my salespeople will hear if they ever introduce me to a customer, 
um, never to refer to me as their boss. I don't ever want to be introduced that way. And why is that? What, why not I like think, that? well, for one, I don't need that for my ego. But right. for two, okay. I want my customers to feel like when they're dealing with my salesperson, they're dealing with the right person. They're mm. dealing with the person they should be dealing with. Mm. So they can introduce me as Danny Cole, but they don't have to, I don't need the, the title, you right. know, and I can welcome the person for coming down to our company. And I could say, thanks for working with the sales guy. And I'll name whoever it might be and say, really appreciate all the business we're doing together. I know he's taking great care of you. Thanks for coming in. I don't need them to put me on a pedestal. I Got don't it. ever put myself on that pedestal. Um, so I just don't think it's really necessary. But it does, I think your observation there, I've never thought of it on those terms, is, uh, is, is pretty astute. Yeah, no, because I, yeah, I just made that connection right now. Um, but yeah, so let's, we got to start wrapping up. How much time we got? Yeah, so a couple more questions yeah. for you. Number one, where do you see yourself? Like, what's next for you? Ten years? I kind of ask everybody this question as. Okay. I'd say, you know, more of what I'm doing. You know, I still love what I do. Um, you know, I, I feel lucky in my business that it's not a stagnant business mm. and stagnant in that we don't just sell one product and we sell the same product forever. You know, every day we have merchandise come in that we've never sold before. And that's literally not an exaggeration. Every day we get deals in, whether it's closeouts or a new import item. So our product line is always changing. So that's okay. really fun. Um, you know, I enjoy helping people become better at what they do. You know, mm. at this point for me, it's not about how much I sell or exactly what I do. If I can help people that work for me become better and better their lives by being a better salesperson, I'm all for that. Um, and um, so I'd say, you know, continuing with what I'm doing and just continuing to try to get the machine working as well as it can. I think I, I really try to pay attention to all the details and, um, you know, just keep things moving the right direction. Got it. Love it. And then, so what advice do you have for like younger generation that want to be, cause you're like, you're doing, you're running your own business, you know, you're on, not on your own time, but like you kind of make your own decisions and like that, I don't know, that's where I want to be eventually, you know, it's like, yeah, I, I guess, you know, it's probably somewhat simplistic, but I, I think it, it goes back to what we spoke about at the very beginning about the job jumping, you know, moving mm -hmm. one place from one, you know, staying a year or going to the next place. I think you've really got to, you have to commit to what you want to do and you have to expect that it's not going to happen overnight and right. you've got to, you know, you've got to dig in, you've got to work hard, you've got to, you've got to put the time in to be really great at what you want to do, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, I think that's a lost art. I think, um, you know, to your generation, I would say, learn how to communicate with your mouth as well as your fingers. Um, I think there's a lot of people that are great at texting and uh -huh. great at emailing, but if you put them in a face-to-face -face and have a conversation, uh, they don't know how to deal with it. So what do you think is the best way to go about like gaining that skill? I think it's like anything. I think you have to practice it. And, um, you know, for people that have never done this, it sounds crazy, but you know, if you want to be a great salesperson, you have to practice your pitch over and over and over again. Right. So back to the sports analogy, a baseball hitter has to go into the batting cage and he's got to hit and hit and hit so that when he's at that moment and he's at the plate, he's able to produce. If you're a salesperson and you're not really practicing your art, mm -hmm. so how would a salesperson practice their art? They've got to, you know, whether it's looking in the mirror right. and saying it over and over again, whether it's going out with your buddy for a drink and saying, I know this is going to sound weird, but I want to, I want to practice it. Will you be honest with me? What do you think? Yeah. How do I sound? Do I have energy? Do I sound good? Do I sound knowledgeable? And I don't think most people are willing to do that. I think oh. most people just think it's going to happen. 
I'll get on the phone, I'll call somebody, and I'll just sound good. Doesn't work that way. Got it. Um, so I would say, you know, put some time into working on your craft, whatever that is. Quick question off that. Yeah. I know we're going a bit. um, But so for salespeople, this is always kind of my question. Is it, is it better to have like a rehearsed script or is it, I don't don't know. Like, cause to me that kind of sounds like that, the energy, it's not authentic. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but my answer is (laughs) no, I would say it's definitely not. I'm not a big scripted person. Okay. Um, but I think, you know, you mentioned the energy. Yeah. I'm a huge energy guy in regards to life, but I mean, people selling for sure. Sure, If you don't have some, you know, if you know some excitement, whatever you're selling, you know, and it's a question I'll ask people when we interview people for sales. What we sell is not very sexy, mm-hmm. right? If you want to sell diamonds or high-end <laughs> electronics, we're not the person for you. And there's people that need that. They want to sell something that really excites them. Right. I get excited by putting deals together, like right. whatever those deals may be. And I think a lot of people re- think they need to be able to sell something sexier to get excited by it. I think you have to, whatever you're doing, I think you have to say, okay, this is how I make my living. This is what's important to me. And you've got to find the energy to talk about it. But I, when I was talking about practicing, I think you have to get so knowledgeable about what you do Mm, that no matter what phone call you're on, you know how to move and groove on that phone call. Right. And I think the scripted sales days are gone. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's really a great, it's not a great process for sales, but I do think having the ability to know your product well enough, and if you ask me a question that throws me off, for me to be knowledgeable enough that I'm quick enough to handle it is more what I was referring to. Got it, got it. Okay, that makes sense. And then just one little more observation, yeah. like just the way the world's going, a lot of jobs are getting automated, but I feel like you're in an industry that can't be automated. Yeah. Know? I think we're, like, pre- I think we're pretty safe on that for yeah. now. You know, um, it is something over time that I, I believe certainly with warehousing, you know, we have a really big warehouse with mm-hmm. lots of equipment uh, not that our warehouse will, but I do think it's something over time, more and more of those jobs will be a little more automated, okay. uh, but it's not something that I give a lot of, it's not something I think about that I, as a big concern for me. Right. Um, but it's, uh, certainly something, you know, again, worldwide that more and more jobs are certainly going that way. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's crazy how it's, how it's going. Definitely. And then one last question. Sorry. So uh, this is just my curiosity again. Is Amazon like, is that cut into your business at all? Or are you, um, it's, it's cut into our business a little bit. I think Uh it's cut into everybody's business because (laughs) if you're a, um, you know, a brick and mortar retailer Uh and you have a store, you know, it's tough that people, you know, again, back to your generation, you know, I know I have nephews that, most of their shopping they do it through Amazon. They yeah. get everything delivered to them. I'm not a big Amazon shopper, though I do buy mm-hmm. occasionally. Uh, but I think there's more and more people that do it out of convenience. Mm-hmm. And the net result of that is the local little store is going to get hurt. Yeah. It has been hurt. Yeah, been hurt. Um, so I sure. think it's something that will continue to evolve. The other problem with it is the price shopping aspect, mm-hmm. you know, where people go in and scan an item and figure out right on the spot. Is it a good deal or not? That's a really tough one for retailers. It's not as tough for us because at the retail price points we sell for, Mm -hmm. it's not as big of a factor, Hmm. but I would, I would not want to be a retailer, for example, selling electronics because everything people are buying, they're just going online and comparing the exact price for the exact same item, which makes it really tough. Yeah. It's crazy. And Amazon just opened bookstores. Like, yeah. I didn't I didn't understand that one. Yeah. A little bit confusing. I'm, <laughs> I'm with you on that. <laughs> Anyways, 
I think that's it for us. Danny Cole. Great. Thanks for coming. It was fun. Absolutely. Appreciate you. You got it.